Welcome to Ulcerative Colitis, Autoimmune Healing Journey. I am your journey guide, Jay India, and I'm so happy that you are here because this is a supportive, positive environment where we can heal together. Please note I am not a doctor or health professional in any way. If you would like to attempt something mentioned in this episode, please consult your doctor or mental health professional first. I have a warning for today's episode. I will be discussing many aspects of trauma, including sexual abuse, cutting, childhood sexual abuse, PTSD, especially with veterans and Holocaust survivors, and other very serious topics of trauma. If you are sensitive to any topics surrounding trauma, you may want to skip this episode or return to it at a later date. Today we are discussing The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and this is part one. I'm going to do two episodes, and this is the first part. Before we get to the episode, so far I've given you 65 episodes and over one and a half years of free content, so please support this podcast by giving me a five-star rating wherever you listen and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey guys, I really need those Apple Podcast reviews and five-star ratings because again, I'm still at that 30 mark and I need to get above that so I can get that little black legitimacy star. So please help me out there. Think about grabbing your partner's or children's phones. And what you do is you just hit play for a little bit and then you just click on five stars and you're done. And also remember to hit the follow button so new apps pop up on your podcast player automatically. Today's topic is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. It is the book, The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by New York Times bestselling author, psychiatrist, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. This book was published in 2014. Kolk is the founder and medical director of the Trauma Center in Brookline, Massachusetts. He is also a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and director of the National Complex Trauma Treatment Network. So I read this book originally somewhere around 2016. I do remember the part where he talks specifically about the veterans and how he helped veterans from their PTSD and how he was actually a big, I guess, part in discovering PTSD and bringing it to light because as he discusses in the book in the 1980s, the VA Association didn't even really acknowledge PTSD, which is amazing to me. And then because of him and others, they are now focused around PTSD. And that's obviously a good thing because we want to help our veterans. So I remember reading the book. I remember reading about the veterans. And then for some reason, I stopped. And I have a feeling it was because he then delves into childhood sexual abuse for pretty much the rest of the book. And I have a feeling I just numbed out, pieced out at that point because I wasn't ready to address everything. And I just possibly stopped reading the book. And then I don't know where the book went. (laughs) I lost track of it. So it's funny how your brain shuts down in that way. In this current session of reading the book, for my mental health, I read parts one through four of the book, and I'm saving part five for a forthcoming episode. The book is about how our body stores trauma and wreaks havoc on the body, mind, body, soul, until we release it. This topic is so vital to UC because I would say all of us have stored trauma that is wreaking havoc in our colon, in our gut. I have discussed the trauma UC connection at length in many episodes. Definitely go back and look at some of my beginning episodes, and we are exploring it more here today. Keep in mind, I'm not sure if we can ever 100% heal ourselves from trauma, but we can certainly achieve a restoration of health and happiness. I'm an example of that. 
as many of you are an example of that. And by the way, this is a lifelong process. So I'm not saying I am 100% good and I'm there and I'm just killing it in life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I'm to a point where I am addressing my childhood trauma and I am releasing it and I can now look at much of the trauma without anger or fits of anger or numbing out the complete opposite. I'm now able to face the situation and come to terms with what happened to me and heal as many of you have done as well. Some of you may have already read this book, others may not. Either way, it is a good reminder to address trauma in the body. I just want to give a quick side note before I start. You will hear me flipping the pages of the book (laughs) because I have all these case studies I want to talk about and quotes and all of that. And I'm just going to be going through the book and then giving my feelings on it and possibly a little bit of my interpretation on it. But I love some of the things that he talked about. And I don't want to paraphrase with certain things. I want to make sure that I'm saying Kolk's exact wording. So hence why you are going to hear the flipping pages of the book, which should make for a fun, interesting podcast, because I normally don't do that. I normally would edit that out, but we're just going to be true to form today. So let us start. And that is actually the simplest way you can start with the prologue on page one. And I want to read about trauma facts. Here's what he says. One does not have to be a combat soldier or visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that one in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body and one in three couples engages in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives, and one out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. Now, he is relaying these facts from 2014, and you have to keep in mind, and this is not a great thing to say, but I have a feeling that COVID made it much worse. Obviously in COVID, a lot of these situations were much worse. And I just want to say, and I know all of you know this, but it goes without saying that these statistics are massively underreported. The amount of sexual abuse, the amount of rape, the amount of uh, domestic abuse, Obviously, those are just situations where the police are called or it's reported some other way. I think these numbers are grossly low. I think they are much higher. And I can't remember if I've said this on this podcast, but when I was a younger person, I would say about 80% of my friends had admitted to me that they were sexually abused as a child. So if you think about that, and those were the people who admitted it to me. So I think it's actually even higher than that. And that's my personal feelings. I have no stats to support that, (laughs) but uh, that's how I feel. So let's move on to, I really love how he talks about how trauma affects the brain. We now know that trauma compromises the brain area that communicates the physical embodied feeling of being alive. These changes explain why traumatized individuals become hypervigilant to threat at the expense of spontaneously engaging in their day-to-day lives. They also help us understand why traumatized people so often keep repeating the same problems and have such trouble learning from experience. We now know that their behaviors are not the result of moral failings or signs of lack of willpower or bad character. They are caused by actual changes in the brain. And I really feel that there's something so comforting in that, and I don't ever want myself to play the victim or you to play the victim and say we're victims of trauma. I try to use the words, you see warriors as best as I can. I try to say survivor. So let's just say survivor for this. It's nice to know that the actual way that trauma irregulates your brain, that's not your fault. And that's certainly not the fault of a child. So that really helps me 
understand that, yes, I have to take responsibility for maybe in the past where I acted inappropriately because that was the trauma coming out. And I do take responsibility for that. But the actual change of the brain, how is that my fault? It's the same with the mold toxins, right, guys? You guys know I have SIRS and the mold toxicity. How is that my fault if I've experienced anxiety for years and sometimes bad anxiety, panic attacks, and I have two things going on. I have the mold toxins and I have trauma that's stored in my body. It's nice and it's comforting to know that you don't feel like you're this person who's just, there's something wrong with you. You know, it's comforting to know, yes, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) It's comforting to know that you didn't have control of it. It's not your fault. Okay, this next case study is very interesting. And this will show my younger listeners how, for lack of a better word, fucked up we were back then in regard to mental health. And you may have heard things like this from your parents of how bad it was back then. You guys, you have no idea. Going to a therapist was something you would have never admitted out loud. I remember in high school or middle school going to the child psychologist, and that's not what it's called, school psychologist wasn't even accepted. You were a freak if you did that. So imagine if you were a child who was sexually abused and you had to go to some sort of therapy and that was not accepted either. Okay, so here's what he said. This is from 1982 or the case studies from 1982. I was particularly struck by how many female patients spoke of being sexually abused as children. Furthermore, the textbook said, there is little agreement about the role of the father-daughter incest as a source of serious subsequent psychopathology. My patients with incest histories were hardly free of subsequent psychopathology. They were profoundly depressed, confused, and often engaged in bizarrely self-harmful behaviors such as cutting themselves with razor blades. The textbook went on to practically endorse incest, explaining that such incestuous activity diminishes the subject's chance of psychosis and allows for a better adjustment to the external world. In fact, as it turned out, incest had devastating effects on a woman's well-being. So can you imagine if you open a textbook back in the day and this textbook is saying that incest is pretty much fine? That's a problem. That's a huge problem. So that's why for my younger listeners, a lot of us in my generation, a lot of us in the generation, I mean, definitely a lot of us in the generation above me, there is a point where I understand that if you've been abused by someone, if you've been tortured by someone, that you can only give them so much grace. And I totally agree with that. But at the same time, you have to understand how tortured people were back in the day, how abused and they couldn't say anything. And it was just normal. And it was the regular And it went down the family line. You know, you look at, I mean, I remember watching Outlander. I don't watch anymore. It's a little too violent for me. But Outlander, you see what goes on in families and of the day back in the, when does Outlander take place? The 1600s or something. And that cycle still hasn't been broken in families. It's still, well, not every family, but certain families. So We can say on a positive note, look at how far we've come, at least from 1982, and thank God, and how bad it was back then. It's unfathomable, but there was just no awareness or sensitivity towards things that were happening in society. All right, so let's move on in what he says about how we can heal from trauma fully. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way mind and brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. We have discovered that helping victims of trauma find the words to describe what has happened to them is profoundly meaningful, but usually it is not enough. The act of telling the story doesn't necessarily alter the automatic physical and hormonal responses of the bodies that remain hypervigilant, prepared to be assaulted or violated at any time. For real change to take place, 
the body needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in the reality of the present. Our search to understand trauma has led us to think differently, not only about the structure of the mind, but also about the processes by which it heals. Whether we recognize it or not, we remain hyper vigilant if we have endured trauma. This stays in our guts and our colons and it torments us. On the surface, it may not seem that you and I are hyper vigilant, but if you've experienced major trauma, then that's probably what's happening, <laughs> right? You have this butterfly feeling in your stomach when you're nervous or you're anxious or panic attacks. When I used to get bad panic attacks, it would feel like I was about to lose my biological functions. For example, being hyper vigilant, I would always go into a room and I just recognized this several months ago that I would scan a room, I would do it subconsciously and I would constantly take in if there were any threats, if anyone was a threat to me, if anyone's energy was a threat to me, and I would do this all the time. I wasn't open. I wasn't trusting. I didn't have that. I was still living in my era of trauma instead of my reality where I am safe, where I am loved, and I do have a good life, and I am addressing the trauma. I also have that I just learned this and I'm going to do an episode on this, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but I have an intense fear of rejection is called interpersonal rejection sensitivity. A lot of people with ADHD have it. It's so funny when I look up certain things, it always aligns with ADHD and I don't have ADD or ADHD. So I find that very fascinating. I've never been tested, but I really don't have any of the symptoms except for the weird ones. <laughs> for example, I hate board games, things like that, just simple little things. In any situation, I can be rejected. I do not like it. I hated in school when you had to get into groups and you had to be picked or you were in gym class and they're like, okay, find a partner. I still don't love it today. When I went to that workshop, I don't know if I talked to you guys about it. I talked about it on two inches off the ground, but I went to that mediumship workshop. I mean, the guy was constantly like, find a partner, find a partner, find a partner. And surprisingly, I was very cool about it and I was calm and I actually mostly stayed in my seat and just let people come to me. So that tells you <laughs> how much I've evolved, but I really don't like being rejected. I take it very personally and I get extremely offended by it. And it's gotten to the point where I'm like, why am I so intrinsically hurt by it? It's like, it goes down to my soul. And I researched on it and I found this interpersonal rejection sensitivity. And I'm going to, again, do an episode on it. So I'm going to get into that more. But that's also something, you know, a result of being hypervigilant, a result of trauma. And it's also a part of healing that I'm recognizing these things about myself that I am hypervigilant and I would scan a room. You know, it's really interesting. I'm going to a party on Friday night, I have to go because it's partially for work. And I also bought the tickets and they were really expensive. So it's, it's for charity, not charity, it's for an organization. And we will see if I do the room scanning thing because now I'm conscious of it where years before I was just unconscious, subconscious of it, subconscious, of it, unconscious of it. <laughs> I'm curious to see how that goes. So it's all a part of healing, realizing what we have to heal. Okay, so then he goes on to talk about the four fundamental truths. And this is what he said. The brain disease model overlooks four fundamental truths. Number one, our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. Number two, language gives us the power to change ourselves and others by communicating our experiences, helping us to define what we know, and finding a common sense of meaning. Number three, we have the ability to regulate our own physiology, including some of the so-called involuntary functions of the body and brain through such basic activities as breathing, moving, and touching. 
And number four, we can change social conditions to create environments in which children and adults can feel safe and where they can thrive. I want to talk about the fundamental truths in regard to this podcast, restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. Several of you have written to me and said to me that I feel like this is a support group. And obviously we don't talk to each other and sit around, but I know what you mean and I feel the same way. And I think that is restoring relationships and community. And we realize that we're not alone. And it was nice after I started this podcast because like, oh, I'm not alone. There are other people who are going through the same things that I am. And there is so much power in that. And also expressing what we've been through in words, right? helping us define what we know and finding a common sense of healing because words are so powerful. And again, when those of you who have written to me, you always tell me your UC story or your UC journey. And I love hearing every single one and I have learned and grown from every single one. So thank you for being that vulnerable and that honest and sharing that with me. It's, it's honestly, it is a real honor to be in this position And because of that, I think it's a really good energy release for you because you're finally able to sit down in writing with words and to tell someone who's not going to gaslight you, who's not going to reject you, who's definitely going to write you back. Is it someone who you know already supports you through words and energy and you receive that communication and I receive it too. I received the same because you write to me and you say the same thing, you know, thank you for doing this. Here's an idea. Here's a tip. Here's what you missed in this podcast. I really appreciate all of that. And I believe this exchange of words that you and I are engaged in, it is so fucking powerful for this disease. It is so powerful because you're not alone And because you are releasing some of that trauma and you're getting out the energy that you need to get out. And it's a really good energy exchange. All right, I digress. So the next thing he talks about is the connection between autoimmune and stored trauma. After trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their life. These attempts to maintain control over unbearable physiological reactions can result in a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, and other autoimmune diseases. This explains why it is critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. This is so similar to what we talked about or what Mindy Atkin talked about in episode 47 on German New Medicine. It's the exact title of this book, The Body Keeps the Score. We have experienced trauma, we're now a survivor, and we have a completely different nervous system than before. Again, it's something that we cannot control, which is good to know, so it takes the fault off of us in regard to this is what happened to us, right? And then it causes things like autoimmune. Then he says it's critical for trauma treatment to engage the entire organism, body, mind, and brain. And I would change that to mind, body, and soul. And it's what we talk about all the time on this podcast. Okay, then he moves on, or he's not moving this fast, I'm moving this fast because I want to give you the best points of the book. You know, I thought of this episode today as if you guys listen to any entertainment news podcasts, and the big thing to do now is if a memoir comes out from a big celebrity like Matthew Perry or Britney Spears or Paris Hilton or someone like that, they'll do an episode and they'll tell you the best parts of the book. I feel like that's what I'm doing. So if you're like, what are you doing? That's what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm not saying don't get the book, definitely get the book. But these are the highlights for us as UC warriors. Okay, loss of purpose and direction. 
There could only be one explanation for such results. In response to the trauma itself and in coping with the dread that persisted long afterwards, these patients had learned to shut down the brain areas that transmit the visceral feelings and emotions that accompany and define terror. Yet in everyday life, those same brain areas are responsible for registering the entire range of emotions and sensations that form the foundation of our self-awareness, our sense of who we are. What we witnessed here was tragic adaptation. In an effort to shut off terrifying sensations, they also deaden their capacity to feel fully alive. The disappearance of medial prefrontal activation could explain why so many traumatized people lose their sense of purpose and direction. I used to be surprised by how often my patients asked me for advice about the most ordinary things and then by how rarely they followed it. Now I understand that their relationship with their own inner reality was impaired. How can they make decisions or put any plan into action if they couldn't define what they wanted or to be more precise, what the sensations in their bodies, the basis of all emotions were trying to tell them? The lack of self-awareness in victims of chronic childhood trauma is sometimes so profound that they cannot recognize themselves in a mirror. Brain scans show that this is not the result of mere inattention. The structures in charge of self-recognition may be knocked out along with the new structures related to self-experience. This is what I discussed with psychotherapist Allison Chawla in episode 13, how I could not find a sense of purpose career-wise, even though it was right in front of me. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, a storyteller, the whole thing, but I just could not get there. And if you were sitting across from me, and, and this frustrated my ex-fiance, this drove him crazy because he was just like, just start writing, just do this, just do that. And I just could not get my brain out of the cycle of trauma to get to that place. And once I did, it was just gangbusters. That's when I started three podcasts. That's when now I'm moving on, not moving on, but I'm adding to it with a radio show and the whole thing. So and doing my book, right? And writing a book in a year and the whole thing. So I truly feel that there is so much power in knowing this because again, this was where I really blamed myself. And I said, I can't get it together career-wise. I can never get it together career-wise. I can never make money. I can never do this. I can never do that. And now I realize what I was doing and that I wasn't addressing the trauma, it wasn't releasing, and I was just stuck in that cycle. It's interesting when Kolk talks about his patients not recognizing themselves in the mirror, literally. At age 32, when I switched from hard contacts to soft contacts, I saw myself for the first time. I was shocked to see that I looked like my baby picture, up until that point, I had little sense of self. It was like a protection from the first layer of trauma and it was peeled back. And then with my recent eye surgery, there was another layer of trauma peeled back. And I truly can tell you guys that I did not feel alive until I turned 40. And I kept having these premonitions that I was going to die at 40 to the point that, and I know I've told this before, but to the point that I was shocked when I woke up on my 40th birthday. I was like, I'm alive. I'm here. I'm still around and kicking. I thought something was going to happen. I was going to die. But now I realized that it wasn't about death. It was more about death of my former self. And that once I started addressing the trauma around age 40, I started that process, then I was able to live again. And I can honestly say I felt like I'd been living in a dead zone up until then. I can seriously say that. That is when around age 40, when my trauma started to release and I was able to get into a healthy, happy marriage I was able to start going after career goals and knocking them down. So there definitely is something to loss of purpose and direction and recognizing that. 
Then he talks about the three somatics for agency. And remember, somatic meaning that brain-body connection. And agency meaning that you're in charge of your own life. So three somatics for agency. Here we go. To draw out the sensory information that is blocked and frozen by trauma to help patients befriend rather than suppress the energies released by that inner experience, to complete the self-preserving physical actions that were thwarted when they were trapped, restrained, or immobilized by terror. I feel that way about this whole detox and the mold toxins that are releasing, my spiritual toxins are releasing as well, especially in past situations of anger. The hard part for me is trying to understand and befriend the energies. I'm becoming better with it. I'm trying to just realize, as I've said many times, that it's all just information and I need to stop looking at it as positive or negative. I'll tell you something. Today, I finally got my Marcon's, Marcon's, I can never say it right, Marcon's test back. And if you guys remember from a few episodes ago, because I have SIRS, there's a really good chance I had Marcon's. Those are the toxins that are the bacteria and fungi that live in your nasal passages, and it's not good. And it's not good because you need to get them the hell out and you have to use special nasal sprays to get them out. And once you get them out, you're going to go through even more of a detox. So I found out earlier today that I'm going to go through yet another die-off Herx <laughs> detox, rea- detox reaction. And this is going to be coming from my brain. So that should be pretty fun and pleasant. And at first I was like, damn, I was hoping I was in the 20% of people who didn't have the Marcons, but I do have them. And I was a little annoyed for a second. And then I said, you know what? Thank God that I've figured this out or I had Dr. Pegg to help me figure this out. I would have never come up with this shit on my own. And they said in the report that this is the reason why you have problems with your red blood cells and anemia and all this kind of stuff in the low MSH. And you have to get these out because if you don't, you'll never repair any of that. So I'm trying to, I guess, befriend is an interesting word, but I'm trying to be grateful that I connected and thank you so much, uh, Shelly Apodaca K, who, who referred me to Dr. Pegg, because now I realize all this and now I can get all of this out of my body. So that's something that happened earlier today where I'm saying, okay, it's another thing that I have to add to my protocol. And that's just how it is. I knew there was an 80% chance. I was hoping I was in the 20%, but let's be realistic. If you have, you know, the low MSH hormone, there's a really good chance you have these little nasal toxins. So that's just another thing I have to do. Also, when Kolk talks about how you have to draw out sensory information that is blocked and frozen by trauma, I have a very interesting example. Tia, my dog, is a rescue. She has been with me for 11 years. She is the cutest thing ever. She's sweet. She's kind. She is a gem. She has this look to her where she looks like a teddy bear. She's from the teddy bear breed. She's a Shishan. And when I go on walks or when I used to in the past, sometimes little small children would walk up to her and grab her face. And she was cool. I can't believe that parents would let her let their kids grab a strange dog's face, but that's a whole nother thing. But she was always cool with them and would sit down and she would be happy to be pet and she would lick them and again, she's just the sweetest puppy. Then she descended into this weird period of time where she started to not bite, but kind of nip at my face if I got too close. And I was always, you know, in her face and rubbing her ears and rubbing her nose. And, you know, my nose was next to her nose and it was never a problem before. And all of a sudden for about six months, maybe eight months, she started to do this. I brought in animal communicator, Tracy Shannon, who has been on two inches off the ground several times, and she gave her an energy treatment. She gave her energy healing. And in that, Tia started 
to shake uncontrollably. And I got worried and Tracy said, nope, she is releasing trauma. She is telling me that when you got too close to her, she was getting flashbacks of when she was in the shelter and she was just getting emotional and it just got triggered in her for some reason. But now because she's shaking, that's showing that the energy and the trauma is releasing from her. And after that session, which was probably two years ago, Tia never nipped at me again. I think that is really fascinating that she was blocked and frozen by trauma and then she had a flashback. I got her help and she was able to release it. And I don't know what awoke that trauma in her body. I have a feeling it must have been at some point I was in her face and it was a tone of voice. I have a feeling it was something like where I was petting her and going, me, 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 you know, doing something like that. And my nose was to her nose and maybe Craig asked for something and I responded back and screamed in her face by accident, not screamed at her, but just like, oh, the ketchup's, you know, the ketchup's in the, the drawer or something. And I didn't realize what I was doing. But she never did it again. And I find that is very telling with releasing trauma. Okay, the next thing that I want to discuss is alexithymia. And this is a long passage I want to read to you because I think it's important. And some of you may be going through this or you may have gone through it and something really important to recognize. Psychiatrists call this phenomenon alexithymia, Greek for not having words for feelings. Many traumatized children and adults simply cannot describe what they are feeling because they cannot identify what their physical sensations mean. They may look furious, but deny they are angry. They may appear terrified, but say that they are fine. Not being able to discern what is going on inside their bodies causes them to be out of touch with their needs, and they have trouble taking care of themselves, whether it involves eating the right amount at the right time or getting the sleep they need. Alexithymics substitute the language of action for that of emotion. When asked, how would you feel if you saw a truck coming at you at 80 miles per hour? Most people would say, I'd be terrified or I'd be frozen with fear. An alexithymic might reply, how would I feel? I don't know. I get out of the way. They tend to register emotions as physical problems rather than as signals that something deserves their attention. Instead of feeling angry or sad, they experience muscle pain, bowel irregularities, and other symptoms for which no cause can be found. About three quarters of patients with anorexia nervosa and more than half of all patients with bulimia are bewildered by their emotional feelings and have great difficulty describing them. When researchers showed pictures of angry or distressed faces to people with alexithymia, they could not figure out what those people were feeling. I do not have alexithymia now, but I would get offended when people would call out my emotions. I would get very up in arms about it. I also find it very telling that this lack of registering emotions and the verbal awareness to express them would cause bowel distress. Interesting that he said that's one of the major symptoms. So if this is something that describes you, you may want to enlist a mental health professional where you can talk about it. Definitely, if this is something you're thinking about, you need to enlist a mental health professional who has a serious background in trauma therapy and addressing trauma with patients and helping them heal. Here's what else Kolk says about alexithymia. One of the first people who taught me about alexithymia was the psychiatrist Henry Crystal, who worked with more than a thousand Holocaust survivors in his effort to understand massive psychic trauma. Crystal himself, a concentration camp survivor, found that many of his patients were professionally successful, but their intimate relationships were bleak and distant. Suppressing their feelings had made it possible to attend to the business of the world, but at a price. They learned to shut down their once overwhelming emotions, and as a result, they no longer recognized what they were feeling. Few of them had any interest in therapy. Paul Fruin at the University of Western Ontario did a series of brain scans of people with PTSD who suffered from alexithymia. 
one of the participants told him, I don't know what I feel. It's like my head and body aren't connected. I'm living in a tunnel, a fog. No matter what happens, it's the same reaction, numbness, nothing. Having a bubble bath and being burned or raped is the same feeling. My brain doesn't feel. Furin and his colleague, Ruth Lanius, found that the more people were out of touch with their feelings, the less activity they had in the self-sensing areas of the brain. Because traumatized people often have trouble sensing what is going on in their bodies, they lack a nuanced response to frustration. They either react to stress by becoming spaced out or with excessive anger. Whatever their response, they often can't tell what is upsetting them. This failure to be in touch with their bodies contributes to their well-documented lack of self-protection and high rates of re-victimization, and also to their remarkable difficulties feeling pleasure, sensuality, and having a sense of meaning. People with alexithymia can get better only by learning to recognize a relationship between their physical sensations and their emotions, much as colorblind people can only enter the world of color by learning to distinguish and appreciate shades of gray. Like my aunt and Henry Crystal's patients, they usually are reluctant to do that. Most seem to have made an unconscious decision that it is better to keep visiting doctors and treating ailments that don't heal than do the painful work of facing the demons of the past. Wow. And I know that if you're listening, you're probably not like that. I have a feeling you're very much a self-aware person and you know that if this episode is really speaking to you, then you know that you need to address things with a mental health professional. Then Colt goes on to talk about undigested trauma. Noticing sensations for the first time can be quite distressing and it may precipitate flashbacks in which people curl up or assume defensive postures. These are somatic reenactments of the undigested trauma and most likely represent the postures they assumed when the trauma occurred. Images and physical sensations may deluge patients at this point and therapists must be familiar with ways to stem torrents of sensation and emotion to prevent them from becoming re-traumatized by accessing the past. Kolk talks about much earlier in the book how there is a young woman who was in a psychiatric ward in Boston and she was so traumatized that she assumed a defensive posture. She was standing for 12 hours and the staff could not get her out of that posture. She didn't sleep. She didn't go to the bathroom. She didn't take breaks. She was frozen in that position for 12 hours. I can't even imagine. And he said as a young psychiatrist, he didn't know what to do. So they just let the episode play out. And what can you do at that point? It's almost like waking a sleepwalker. And to me, I don't want to go too into the metaphysical, but it sounds almost like she was having a metaphysical reaction to trauma where she was literally just so stuck that mind, body, soul were just in one place and she was almost frozen in time. So I found that extremely compelling that that could happen to a human. I also found Kolk's wording extremely compelling that these are the somatic reenactments of undigested trauma. That reminds me a lot of what Mindy talked about in the German New Medicine episode, how she was talking about that indigestible morsel. And once the brain takes the snapshot of when trauma happens, we have that sensory experience and it just stays with us and it stays in our body. The other thing he talks about is lack of contact which is caused by intense feelings of shame, which is caused by abnormal brain activation. I had this issue in my 20s. I had a hard time making eye contact with people. And if I look back, I have a feeling I had this problem in high school and middle school and the whole thing. But definitely my 20s, I remember that. Again, it's comforting to know it's not our faults. We did not cause the trauma. We did not want the trauma. We did not attract the trauma. We did not ask for it. The sexual abuse trauma caused my brain to activate irregularly. It's very similar to the mold toxins and feeling anxiety in the past. I couldn't control it. 
And it's probably the same with you. Yes, we have to take responsibility for our actions. If we lash out, if we do something horrible, of course. But there comes a point when you're addressing trauma that at certain times in your life, at certain points in addressing it, that you had lost all control. And if it's something that literally changes your brain, you just have to recognize that. I'm just going to quickly go through a few more things. He talks about the autoimmune and incest link that if you have been a victim of incest, that a lot of these incest survivors have autoimmune disease. I thought that was something to note. So he talks about a patient of his who is an incest survivor. And he says, like so many survivors of childhood abuse, Marilyn exemplified the power of the life force, the will to live into one's own life, the energy that counteracts the annihilation of trauma. I gradually came to realize that the only thing that makes it possible to do the work of healing trauma is awe at the dedication to survival that enabled my patients to endure their abuse and then to endure the dark nights of the soul that inevitably occur on the road to recovery. Then he talks about a case study where there's a man, and this happened back in the day in the 1800s. He was in a horse and carriage accident. And right before the wagon wheel hit him, he felt that it was going to run over his legs. It did not. The wagon wheel did not run over his legs. But before he got hit and passed out, that was his last memory. And again, similar to you see in German New Medicine, because you take that snapshot, the idea of the conflict shock at the moment of trauma with all of our five senses and it's stored in the body. And here's where things get really interesting is when he was in the hospital, he became paralyzed because he believed that the wagon wheel had ran over his legs. And again, it did not. But his trauma skewed his reality, which happens to us as well. Uh, For example, causing intolerances to foods we never had before, right? As Mindy had said, you are drinking coffee, eating eggs, you get a phone call, and your spouse has been in a terrible car accident. Well, then you're going to have problems, most likely drinking coffee and eating eggs from now on. So it was the same with this man, but he just manifested his trauma in a different way. And they said that they really looked over his legs and there was nothing wrong with him. But because he had this stored trauma, he could never walk again. What the brain and the traumatic memory does to you. Then Kolk discusses the trauma memory versus the normal memory. Once the trauma memory is recollected in details with an energetic reaction in talk therapy, that is when the trauma memory is discharged by action or talk therapy. Otherwise, the patient does reenactments. For example, this is the person, and I'm sure you've done it and I've done it, who have repeated cycles that frustrate everyone. They repeatedly have abusive partners. For me, I would repeatedly have partners who were narcissists. And I actually had friends who were narcissists because my sexual abuser was a narcissist. So I kept trying to repeat that pattern. And they also say when you're repeating that pattern, not only is it unconscious, but you're unconsciously, as Kolk says, trying to solve the issue. You're trying to go back again and say, okay, I have control of this situation when you don't have any tools to do that. Because if you did, you wouldn't be in that situation again because you haven't addressed the trauma. Kolk notes that a person who is traumatized develops two memories, the normal memory and the trauma memory. In the normal memory, the person can remember certain memories in details because they have an emotional connection to it versus their normal, banal daily routine where they can't remember what they did yesterday. And that's so typical of all of us. If you ask me what I ate for breakfast yesterday, I cannot remember right now. Can't tell you. Have to think about that one. But if you ask me about a specific memory when I was 12 of, let's say, going to the beach and finding this incredible shell, I can tell it to you in detail because I had that emotional connection to it. In the trauma memory, 
The person's thoughts are disorganized. They can clearly remember certain parts of the trauma and detail sensory aspects while having huge gaps in memory. Coke was fascinated how the person could recount every minute detail of their trauma with vivid description, but then not be able to recall huge chunks of it. To end part four of the book, Kolk discusses his patient named Nancy. She has undergone tubal ligation, or she got her tubes tied to prevent future pregnancies. She awoke during the procedure, unbeknownst to the medical staff, due to improper anesthesia, and she felt the horrifying pain of the procedure. This caused her immense trauma that nearly destroyed her personal life, and she was able to heal from her trauma with a talk therapist who empowered her to heal herself. And she started doing Pilates regularly, and that made all the difference. So I just want to add something really quick about Nancy. And the interesting part of her story was that when she recalls the trauma memory, she can tell certain parts of the story in absolute vivid detail. She has this nuanced part of the story where she heard the nurses talking about a nurse who had an affair. And then the anesthesiologist had realized that Nancy was waking up or was alert. And the anesthesiologist said, oh, don't put this in the report to save his own ass. But then other parts, she had huge gaps. So that's what I mean about the trauma memory. Kolk discusses how talk therapy does work for most trauma survivors. Not all though, in certain cases, trauma is so trapped in the body, it causes loss of words and only healing touch therapies such as massage can release the trauma and finally allow the patient to talk. Kolk's patient, Nancy, makes a huge statement here for us UC warriors. Yes, talking is the key, we all know that, but the physical part of it is key too. Releasing the trauma toxins physically has to be done. It's releasing the toxins, mind, body, and soul. I feel like I'm doing this with this major detox by having to exercise more. If you found that you're doing talk therapy and that's great and you need more, think about a physical activity that will release those mind, body, soul trauma toxins. What appeals to you? dance, running, CrossFit, martial arts, swimming, etc., or maybe yoga or Pilates. Either way, we have to start feeling into our bodies again and releasing. We have to find a way to physically release the trauma memories from our colons. Also think about physical touch modalities such as massage, acupuncture, energy healing, etc., it often doesn't take a lot, perhaps a session or two to help you release. That's like me with the trauma energy healer. It was, I think I've been to her two to three times. That's it in a year and a half. Next week, I'm either doing part two of The Body Keeps the Score or another episode. Either way, I will do part two soon. If you have gained any knowledge, insight, or comfort from these episodes, please support the podcast. Buy my UC ebook, my meditations, and donate. All the links are in the show notes. In my household, when we have a perfect shit, you know when it slides out of your body, it's a perfect color and solidly formed, and you're so proud of yourself that you turn around on the toilet and go, wow, we call that a green heart. I wish everyone a green heart day.